0: Well, whether the Civil War was preventable is a debate that began shortly after Appomattox and continues, of course, today. But even earlier, in 1861, a group of of Union-loyal Virginians, led by George Summers, (laughs) John Brown Baldwin, John Janney, and Jubal Early, felt that war was avoidable. And in the statewide election for delegates to the secession convention that same spring, these Unionists defeated the Southern rights Democrats with a huge majority of votes across Virginia. These men unsuccessfully negotiated with Secretary of State William Henry Seward to prevent the national tragedy that, of course, would ensue. Author and historian Lawrence M. Denton traces this remarkable story of the Virginians who worked against all odds in a failed attempt to save a nation from going to war. Larry Denton, an authority on the secession crisis, is a descendant of several Maryland families who predate the Revolutionary War. He holds a master's degree with honors from Johns Hopkins University, where he began his career as assistant to the dean. He held several academic administrative posts at the university from 1968 to 1978. That latter year, he accepted an appointment to serve as a special assistant The associate administrator of NOAA. He ended his career representing the Weather Channel in Washington, D.C., where he played an instrumental role in the production of its highly acclaimed TV series, Forecast Earth. Denton is the author of A Southern Star for Maryland, Maryland and the Secession Crisis, William Henry Seward and the Secession Crisis, The Effort to Prevent Civil War, and most recently, Unionists in Virginia, Politics, Secession and their plan to prevent civil war. When he is not lecturing widely throughout the Mid-Atlantic, he lives with his wife Susan, who's with him today, near Oxford on the eastern shore of Maryland. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Larry Denton.
1: Well, I'm uh, very pleased to be here uh, in the capital of Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. Uh, Give me just a second to uh, get my notes in order here. In 1860, Virginia was the state to have and to hold for both the North and the South. What's that all about? It's the most populous state in the South. It's the wealthiest state in the South. It just is the state. Why is it the state? Well, it has an R about it. Of course, it's the state of Williamsburg and Jamestown. Uh, It is the uh, uh, state where the nation uh, achieved its independence at Yorktown. But it was also the state of Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Monroe. It just had an aura about it uh, that uh, the rest of the nation uh, was uh, consumed with. Uh, today, I want to spend uh, most of my time talking <coughs> with you uh, about April of 1861, uh, the most tragic month in the nation's history uh, when the nation went to war with itself. Um, uh, here you see a 1860 uh, photo of uh, Virginia, uh, of Richmond, and uh, it was the most magnificent city in the south uh, in, at that point in time. Um, Let me set the stage a little bit uh, for talking about Virginians. Uh, William Freeling, uh, award-winning Civil War historian. Many of you might remember Bill uh, Freeling uh, on uh, April 17, 2011, the 150th anniversary of the uh, signing of the uh, the vote uh, on the Ordinance of Session. Uh, Bill Freeling was the principal speaker at the State House. They reenacted it. Uh, his uh, speech can be uh, heard uh, on the internet, and I urge you to uh, go take a, uh, a listen to what he has to say. Uh, <clears throat> Freeling, uh, his, uh, his major work is a two volume uh, study called The Road to Disunion. Uh, the second volume deals with uh, secessionist triumphant. And in that volume, uh, he talks about the happenstance uh, about uh, even bad luck uh, that caused the nation to uh, drift into civil war. And I want to speak to you today a little bit about uh, bad luck. Uh, the bad luck, if we define bad luck as <coughs> things that helped precipitate the drift towards Civil War. Uh, The bad luck actually started in Chicago in May of 1860 uh, when Abraham Lincoln snatched uh, the Republican Party nomination for president from William Henry Seward. Seward's the most uh, well-known politician in the country. Most newspapers referred to him as Mr. Republican. Uh, He uh, was widely Considered a true visionary of the era, uh, in my Seward book, uh, I devote the first chapter to uh, how Lincoln uh, won the nomination, or really how Seward lost the nomination, and uh, I entitled the chapter "Luck of the Draw," you uh, know, common phrase. And historians have uh, blasted me for using the word "luck." Well, I told them one. Uh, gentlemen, I couldn't say happenstance of the draw. It just doesn't, <laughs> it just doesn't sit right. Well, anyway, uh, Lincoln receives the nomination. Fast forward to August of 1860. The Republican uh, campaign is going nowhere. Uh, Seward is convinced uh, by the leadership of the Republican Party to get active uh, in the campaign. He does, he makes a magnificent tour of what was then called the uh, Northwest, which is the Midwest now, uh, Illinois, Indiana, (coughs) uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. Uh, And he he really turns the electorate on uh, to the Republican uh, Party ticket. Uh, He thinks he is the uh, primary cause uh, for Lincoln's uh, victory. Uh, in November 6, uh, of course, Lincoln uh, wins the nomination. He receives 39% of the popular vote. Um, he, he, uh, he, his party doesn't capture the House or the Senate. Uh, he wins a huge Electoral College victory because he, he uh, uh, carried the uh, states, uh, the populist states in the North, uh, but uh, a mandate he did not receive. Uh, We we now go uh, fast forward to uh, actually crawling forward a few days after the election. uh, South Carolina decides to uh, uh, begin the process of withdrawing from the union. They did it in an incredibly fast uh, manner. Uh, On December 20th, uh, the vote is taken by the aristocrats of South Carolina and they uh, withdraw from the union. Uh, six other states of the lower south uh, pretty rapidly in January uh, leave the union uh, with Texas on February 1st uh, being the last one uh, to uh, uh, withdraw. Uh, in Richmond, the Virginia legislature is a meeting and they decide uh, they will call for a state convention to be held. Uh, this is a uh, loss uh, for the uh, Unionists of Virginia and a big win for the pro-Confederate uh, folks in Virginia. Uh, but the uh, Unionists uh, also have a win uh, because the legislature decided that any uh, motion uh, passed by the uh, convention would have to be approved uh, by the people of Virginia. So, what happened then is the last couple of weeks of January, first few days of February, the legislature uh, scheduled the vote for delegates to the Virginia State Convention uh, for February 4th. Well, there was an intense campaign. Uh, the, uh, uh, I call it the slave power, but the pro-Confederate uh, uh, folks uh, had the Democratic Party uh, apparatus at their disposal uh, they had huge wealth from the large planners at their disposal. Uh, I think most people uh, felt they were uh, uh, favored, if not heavily favored, to win the selection. Well, lo and behold, they lost. And they didn't lose 51-49%. You know, political scientists today say a 10%. spread of 55-45 is a landslide victory. Well, the Unionists of Virginia just smeared the pro-Confederacy people, 69% to 31%. Uh, Many historians uh, have questioned me, well, saying, well, well, all those votes came uh, from Northwestern Virginia, and uh, that part of the state seceded and became uh, uh, West Virginia. Well, as this uh, chart uh, shows, uh, that's just not correct. Uh, the votes uh, came uh, from, granted, uh, major part from the Northwest. Uh, Southwest, 68% of the votes uh, were unionists. In the Valley region, hugely strong unionists, uh, 81%. And even in the Black Belt uh, regions, uh, Piedmont and the Tidewater, half the people uh, who voted uh, voted for uh, the Unionist Party. Uh, So February uh, became uh, just a spontaneous uh, Unionist uh, backlash against the seceded states. North Carolina voted 70%. Uh, f- uh, unionists, Tennessee, seventy percent Unionists, and, and now picture uh, the Upper South here and the Border South. Those states to the north of Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, all of those states uh, were more Unionist uh, than the uh, Middle South states. Um, March, uh, so so the end of February. Uh, Tennessee had voted, uh, North Carolina had voted, all of the uh, border south states had swung decidedly unionist. Uh, It was a huge, huge upper for the country. Uh, Many uh, northern newspapers were saying, see what Virginia did, she's now with us. Um, And uh, March, uh, Lincoln takes uh, office on Monday, March 4th, Um, He had given his uh, inaugural address to uh, Seward uh, for some reaction. Seward tells him, your uh, first draft inaugural address just won't cut it. It's too harsh. It's too argumentative. It will drive Maryland and Virginia out of the Union. Uh, Seward uh, rewrites it, uh, does not hear back from Lincoln. Uh, Seward had also briefed Lincoln on his Southern policy, and the Southern policy was to make an accommodation with the upper and border South, the eight slave states that still remained in the Union. Well, what was the accommodation all about? Uh, It was uh, really just two-pronged. The first prong uh, was that uh, we will not start a fight at Fort Sumter. Uh, The second prong was we will not invade or coerce, as the term was used then, any of the seceded states to return to the Union. Well, that's not a whole heck of a lot. Um, So March 2nd, the afternoon of March 2nd, this is uh, less than 48 hours from the inauguration, Seward withdraws from the Cabinet. He sends letter, uh, Lincoln a crisply uh, worded memo that I uh, take leave to withdraw my consent to be in your cabinet. What a stunning development. Uh, Lincoln uh, and his family are staying in a number of suites at the old Willard Hotel uh, in Washington. Uh, Seward and Lincoln meet all day on the 3rd, no staff present. No one knows what they talked about. Uh, No one really knows what happened. But Lincoln delivers an inaugural address that essentially accepted every single uh, revision that Seward made. It's much more conciliatory. Uh, It really is one uh, that, uh, while many Southerners do not applaud it, uh, it's certainly not an antagonistic uh, uh, address. Uh, and clearly, Lincoln made some accommodation to Seward's Southern policy. For on Monday morning, uh, excuse me, Tuesday morning, uh, uh, March 5th, uh, Seward uh, rescinds his uh, resignation and assumes the role of Secretary of State in the new administration. Immediately, immediately, uh, the new cabinet is dealing with uh, um, a telegram from Robert Anderson, who's uh, commanding at uh, Sumter, that he only has supplies for a few weeks, and he's recommending uh, that the fort be abandoned. Seward now believes that to save the nation, Sumter must be abandoned. He starts uh, working on uh, the uh, rest of the cabinet uh, members. Uh, On March 15th, the Ides of March, uh, Lincoln uh, asks for a vote, a formal vote, and the cabinet votes 5 to 2 in favor of abandoning Fort Sumter. Uh, Seward lets the northern press know this. He's in uh, secret communications with uh, leaders of the uh, Virginia State Convention. Uh, he lets them know uh, it just, it's an ebullient mood uh, that, that takes over uh, uh, the nation. Wow, we're not going to start a war over Sumter. Um, as I said, I want to spend most of my time talking about um, April uh, April was a horrible, horrible uh, month uh, for the nation. Uh, as we uh, go through this, I want to introduce you to some of the uh, Virginians in the Virginia State Convention. This is John Janney. He's elected president of the Virginia State uh, Convention. He's from Northern Virginia. He's a strong, staunch unionist. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he came this close... <laughs> to becoming a household word. Uh, I'll speak to that in just a moment. Uh, but Janney takes charge. Uh, all of the key committees uh, of the convention he points unionist uh, to uh, a lead. Uh, this is a post-war picture of uh, Jubal Early. Um, but Early, um, uh, prior to the war, was a staunch Unionist. Uh, he made uh, speech after speech at the convention um, urging Virginians not to secede. Um, uh, This is Lewis Harvey. Uh, He is the leader of the uh, pro-Confederate forces. Uh, He is a uh, large slaveholder. He is representative of the uh, pro-Confederate Confederate uh, uh, delegates i 'm um, often asked uh, well uh, who, who were the pro confederate people uh, at this point in time, and who were the unionists? Uh, my mentor uh, uh, on in this research is a professor named uh, Dan Cross. Uh, Cross is widely regarded as one of the uh, uh, leading uh, secession crisis experts in the country and uh, uh, cross uh, in uh, a few decades of study came to this conclusion, uh, that by and large, the folks that were pro-Confederate were the large plantation owners and those who owned large numbers of slaves. Uh, we define that as owning 10 to 20 slaves or more. That's a large slave owner. Folks that owned... Uh, just a, a slave or two or five were called smallholders. Uh, slavery was very, very different uh, in these two uh, uh, arenas. Uh, and anyway, uh, the large slave owners, and coupled with uh, whites of the lower so socio-economic uh, uh, area, they made up uh, basically the the. Pro-Confederate uh, group in the uh, uh, in, in the uh, convention. Uh, the Unionists uh, tended to be uh, some uh, I call them the enlightened large slaveholder. Uh, William Cabell Reeves uh, was was uh, a leading example. Um, the rising professional class, uh, the rising uh, middle Americans, uh, they. Um, uh, were the uh, Unionists. Cross makes this uh, really compelling point. He said this, in looking at these Unionists, the Virginia Unionists, uh, the thing that was so remarkable is slavery was irrelevant to them. Most of them did not own slaves. Most of them did not care about slavery. Uh, most of them uh, were in towns. They were, they were looking... Uh, Railroads were the big thing there. Everybody wanted a railroad to stop near them because they, uh, uh, it would become an instant commercial center. Um, in any case, uh, that's the two groups we're talking about. Here's John Tyler, uh, John, 10th President of the United States. Um, the Virginia uh, legislature called for a peace convention in Washington during February. Uh, Tyler is the uh, uh, president, permanent president. Uh, this is my... Uh, Uh, One of my heroes, William Henry Seward, he's a, uh, uh, as I said earlier, he's an enlightened politician. Um, He's Secretary of State. He is the one that reaches out to Virginia Unionists uh, to uh, 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 try to find a way to prevent civil war. Uh, This is a fellow I think is uh, right out of uh, Central Casting. This is Thurlow Weed. Uh, Weed is the political boss of New York State. He's a confidant of Seward, and uh, uh, folks, that looks like a political boss to me. Uh, he, uh, he was one of the ones that originally uh, coined the phrase, uh, uh, once bought, stay bought. So, <laughs> so uh, let me, as I said, I, I really want to spend some time Uh, talking about uh, April, the month uh, the nation went to war, and the key role the Unionists of uh, Virginia played in this month. Uh, We're gonna go back and forth between Washington and Richmond. Um, Our story really begins here on March 28th. Lincoln's holding his first state dinner at the White House. Um, After that dinner, he asked his cabinet to stay, uh, where he, uh, he says, I'm about to make the decision uh, to resupply Sumter. Seward is just stunned. He thought he would won the battle, five to two vote. Um, there had been a subsequent vote uh, that was closer. But uh, Seward thought he had won the battle. Uh, he had essentially told the nation uh, and the nation was ready uh, for the uh, government to abandon uh, Sumter. Um, Lincoln, totally exhausted, uh, totally inexperienced, uh, without a kitchen cabinet, he ignores the advice of the military high command, he ignores the advice. Of his senior advisor, William Henry Seward. He ignores the advice of dozens and dozens of prominent Unionists from the other South, uh, from the border and Upper South, to abandon Sumter. And he makes the decision uh, to uh, reinforce Sumter. Uh, Seward, on April 1st, sends uh, Lincoln a. uh, a a small treatise entitled, Some Thoughts for the President's Consideration. (laughs) It is the most unbelievable paper ever sent to a sitting president by one of his advisors. The paper calls for uh, uh, policies, both domestic and foreign, uh, uh, to be uh, promulgated. It it calls for the uh, Navy to be recalled from uh, foreign ports. Uh, to come come back and to uh, uh, really uh, blockade the uh, ports of the states that have ceded. And, and uh, at the end, uh, he uh, says uh, uh, someone must take charge of the government, uh, implying that it should be him. Uh, um, we don't know how Lincoln responded. Uh, we do know uh, uh, that uh, uh, Lincoln essentially uh, said, uh, I'm the president, and I'm going to uh, make the decisions here. Uh, at this time, uh, Seward reiterates a February uh, concept. Uh, Lincoln, uh, when he came to Washington, he arrived 22nd or 23rd. He, he meets with a, a group of Upper South uh, Uh, Unionists, including uh, William Cabell Reeves of Virginia, and he says in that meeting, if Virginia will stay in the Union, I will withdraw the troops from Sumter. Uh, Lincoln uh, supporting his historians have coined uh, the, the little expression they attributed to Lincoln, I don't know whether he said it or not, Uh, but uh, it's supposedly a fort for a state is no bad business, and, indeed, it isn't. Uh, Well, so in Richmond, uh, Washington is in total turmoil uh, April 1st. Um, In Richmond, uh, the Unionists are still in charge at the convention. Uh, There are rumors that war preparations are uh, being made in New York Harbor with some of the ships there, and uh, uh, the the Unionist position is weakening. Uh, Seward, uh, sometime on April 2nd, uh, convinces Lincoln that he needs to meet with the Virginians and offer the fort for a state. Uh, proposal. Uh, Lincoln agrees to do it. Uh, I, I think he he really wasn't serious uh, uh, about making the offer. Uh, I think he was really assaging uh, uh, Seward's uh, uh, concern. But anyway, in any case, uh, on the morning of the 3rd, a Virginia named Alan Magruder was called to the State Department. Seward explains to him uh, that the President needs to see a Virginia unionist immediately um, Magruder spends all day uh, traveling by train from Washington to Richmond. Uh, he reaches the uh, state convention. He calls George Summers. He said, I've been sent by the President of the United States to urge you to come to Washington immediately for talks of the utmost importance. Uh, Summers calls uh, the leadership, union leadership together, which includes uh, John Brown, Baldwin, their <laughs> rising star from Lexington, um, and they sit down and grill Magruder. Well, what's he want to see us about? Well, I don't know. He just called me and said, you know, I've got to see a Virginia unionist, and you've got to get somebody here quickly. Uh, so in any case, the uh, unionists uh, agree to send someone. Uh, Summers says, well, it can't be me. Uh, because Lewis Harvey, who I showed you earlier, uh, was rumored that he was going to uh, uh, present a secession ordinance uh, in front of the convention uh, the very next day and summer said well i 've got to be here to manage uh, uh, you know, the the votes so we can defeat that uh, well." Baldwin's the the youngest of the leadership. He's the most vigorous. Uh, So they choose uh, Baldwin uh, to go see Lincoln. Baldwin gets on the the RF&P, the train that stopped right in downtown Richmond, and he travels all night. He arrives in Seward's office uh, uh, early uh, on the morning of the 4th at 11 a.m. Seward takes him to see Lincoln. Uh, No staff present. The two of them. Go off and have a conversation. We do not know what happened. We do not know what uh, uh, was said. Uh, after, after the conversation, uh, Baldwin goes back to see Seward, and Seward's uh, saying, "Well, did he offer a fort for a state?" And Baldwin said, "No," and and he didn't get any offer. There's nothing in writing. Uh, so Baldwin uh, goes over to Alexandria, makes a speech there, and then he heads back to Richmond. He gets back to Richmond, and uh, the Unionist leadership uh, get get him right away. They go into a secret meeting, and they just uh, 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 they just go after him. Well, Baldwin, uh, what did the president say? And Baldwin said, "Well, I, I I couldn't get couldn't get much out of what he said." Uh, he said, uh, uh, and I don't know whether this happened or not, but it is purported uh, that Lincoln said, well, you have arrived too late. In any case, uh, later that afternoon, uh, Lincoln signs an order to uh, <clears throat> prepare a naval expedition to go to Fort Sumter uh, and relieve the fort. <clears throat> uh, So here we are, Baldwin's returned, uh, in fact, uh, in New York Harbor, uh, the major warship that there is called the Powhatan, the Powhatan is in fact uh, being readied for sea. Uh, There are southern eyes there, Uh, they are telegraphing their friends in Washington, their friends in Richmond, their friends in Charleston, and indeed their friends in Montgomery. Uh, So the Virginia Unionists still hold their coalition together. On the 5th, 6th, and 7th of April, uh, the Committee on Federal Relations is now bringing forth their recommendations uh, to uh, uh, how to save the nation from civil war, and uh, they are being debated and voted on one by one. Um, A terrific rainstorm... uh, sweeps through Virginia on the 9th. Um, uh, By then, it is confirmed uh, that indeed warships have left New York Harbor, and most people uh, have figured out they're heading for uh, Charleston. Uh, uh, William Boward Preston, uh, a Unionist, uh, gets a motion passed at the convention that yet another delegation will be sent uh, to uh, see Lincoln. Uh, this delegation is uh, headed by uh, Preston. It uh, includes uh, Sandy Stewart from Lexington, a staunch unionist, and, it, uh, and uh, Randolph. Nelson, what's his first name? The, the third? George. George Randolph, thank you. <laughs> uh, Nelson Langford's here, and he knows this stuff. <laughs> uh, anyway... Uh, they are delayed getting out of Richmond because some of the railroad uh, bridges uh, have been uh, uh, washed out. Uh, they end up taking a boat to Baltimore and then a train from Baltimore to Washington. They don't arrive in, front, in Lincoln's office until um, uh, the evening of the 12th. Uh, Lincoln cannot see them uh, until the morning of the 13th. Well, as you all know, <coughs> uh, in the early morning hours of uh, April 12th in Charleston Harbor, uh, a group of, uh, of uh, Confederate officers uh, row out to uh, Fort Sumter. Uh, they uh, confront uh, Anderson and say, we demand your surrender. And uh, Anderson says, well, uh, I'll surrender <clears throat> uh, on uh, April 15th. Uh, And as they're leaving, uh, Anderson says, well, I only have enough food for a couple more days anyway. Uh, So they go back. They report this to uh, General Beauregard, who's now been appointed (coughs) commander of uh, the uh, uh, Confederate forces in Charleston. Uh, Beauregard uh, wires uh, Leroy Walker, who's the Secretary of War for the new Confederate government in Montgomery. And Walker. Uh, sends back a telegram, well, don't open fire, go back and see uh, if you can get him to surrender, not on the 15th, but uh, more, uh, you know, like now. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so they go back uh, around midnight uh, and confront uh, Anderson again, and he says, uh, uh, no, he, he's, he's going to uh, stay with his, uh, I'll surrender on the 15th. Uh, They essentially said, well, uh, we have the honor to inform you uh, that we will open fire on you uh, in one hour or three hours or whatever, and and in fact, they do. Um, Lincoln, through Seward, had promised the Virginians on any number of occasions uh, that he would not reinforce Fort Sumter. He would give them a chance... Uh, to uh, uh, work their magic. And what was the magic they were working on? Can't walk over there, can I? (laughs) Uh, These are the uh, states that had seceded, the Gulf states. The Middle South states, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas, again, as I mentioned earlier, had all swung, had all voted strongly Unionist. So, uh, and, the, and the, the border south states w- were even more strongly unionist than these states. Well, Seward instantly saw if I can keep these eight slave states in the union, we got it. And why does he have it? 70% of white southerners live in these eight states, 70% of the wealth. 80% of the manufacturing capability are in these eight states. The accoutrements of, uh, uh, of uh, waging war, horses, wagons, and here, all here. So keeping those eight states uh, really means everything uh, to Seward. Uh, he's, he's gone over this time and time and time again with Lincoln. Do not do anything to keep us from, from keeping these states. Because if we keep these states, we'll let these guys start a civil war. Yeah, and, and, and with the whole North and these eight states. The other thing, Seward's this visionary politician. Uh, so, so, so what if you get these eight states? Well, they're having elections in Virginia in May, uh, Tennessee and North Carolina in the summer. All of these states are having statewide elections in, within the next six months. So if these unionist majorities now capture the state legislatures, remember in that era, U.S. senators were appointed by the legislatures, were not uh, uh, popularly elected. Uh, in some of the states, uh, governors were appointed by the legislature. Well, if, if these eight states send 16 unionist-leading uh, southerners uh, to the Congress, wow, wow. Seward just sees all kinds of possibilities uh, uh, of of, uh, what could be done. So anyway, Lincoln doesn't buy uh, any of this. He gets persuaded by the radical Republicans uh, that for political reasons, we need to teach, teach these bad guys in Charleston Uh, a lesson, and we need to go there and beat them up. The the military high command uh, has uh, told Lincoln in no uncertain terms that you cannot resupply Fort Sumter. You may have been able to do it in January before the Charlestonians had surrounded the the, the, uh, fort uh, with cannons, uh, but by... uh, Uh, But by early April, uh, I don't know the number of cannons, but it's probably, it's on the order of 100. I mean, they have cannons all around the fort. So just can't get, can't get, uh, Lincoln says, uh, well, I don't believe that. And he makes up an excuse to send uh, uh, this fellow, uh, uh, Gus Fox. You know, I was talking about unlucky things that happen, And one of the unlucky things that uh, happened uh, in the course of our nation's drift to war is uh, Gus Fox happened to be the brother-in-law of Montgomery Blair. Uh, Blair is uh, uh, Lincoln's uh, postmaster general. And Gus Fox wants to be a war hero. And he has a plan to... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, reinforce uh, Fort Sumter by sea. Uh, The military high command looks at it and says it's just a a harebrained scheme. Uh, Lincoln buys it. And he he sends Fox uh, to uh, Charleston uh, in mid-April under the guise of uh, go down there and tell the Charlestonians you're there to uh, arrange for the uh, withdrawal of the troops and uh, so they let him, they let Fox uh, go out and see Anderson. They have a, a confrontation at the fort, and uh, Anderson essentially uh, tells uh, Fox, you, you know, you're a hairbrain. Get out of here. This thing isn't going to work. And uh, so uh, uh, off he goes. Uh, Fox comes back and uh, uh, sees Lincoln. Now, you know, how, how, does, how does a mid-level retired Navy officer get to see the President of the United States? Well, the unlucky thing, if you're talking about preventing civil war, is this guy just happens to be related to the postmaster general. So every time he wants to get in to see uh, uh, Lincoln, he calls uh, uh, Monty. Hey, uh, you know, can you get me in to see Lincoln for a half hour? Bingo, it happens. So uh, uh, he comes back. He, he, uh, he goes and briefs uh, Lincoln uh, that uh, the plan will work. So Lincoln approves it, and from New York Harbor, uh, I think uh, there was a ship from uh, Norfolk, uh, they go to rendezvous uh, off of uh, Charleston. Uh, I had mentioned that rainstorm that <clears throat> swept across central Virginia. It's now off Hattress. They hit the rainstorm. Uh, they have 200 the troops on the uh, hull of one of these big ships. They all get seasick. Stuff gets washed overboard. Uh, They had the two shallow draft tugs that they were going to load the troops and supplies on and sneak them in in the middle of the night. Uh, The tugs get blown off course. One ends up in Wilmington, Another ends up in, uh, uh, what's the town south of Charleston in Georgia? Uh, Thank you, Savannah. The other one ends up in Savannah. And so the whole thing is a catastrophic disaster. The Pohatan, the big warship, uh, that was to accompany them. Uh, Seward uh, meddles in the whole plan, and uh, the warship uh, goes to Pensacola, Florida, uh, with the troops to uh, uh, reinforce uh, Fort Pickens there. Uh, the, the whole thing, uh, folks. When when you drill down in this and you look, it, it's it's not only sad. Uh, what what you see is a a tragic comic opera unfold in front of you. Uh, Richard Curran, the award-winning Civil War historian, listen to what he says about the resupply uh, effort. The evidence on the whole makes it hard to believe that Lincoln could have counted on a peaceful provisioning of Fort Sumter. He knew well what had happened to Pichanan's attempt to send supplies in a lone, unarmed merchant ship, Star of the West? He had little reason to expect of a more friendly welcome for his own much larger expedition, which included warships. Uh, for Seward, this was a major, uh, major uh, loss. Um, Am i doing okay time wise. I, I need to tell you as an aside here. Um, when, when I was at uh, Hopkins, I had the wonderful opportunity to work for Milton Eisenhower. He was the president there. And uh, Ike's son, his nephew, John Eisenhower, <coughs> retired to the Eastern Shore of Maryland, where I live. We had the same tennis coach. And John was a prolific writer. Uh, He wrote a book, Agent of Destiny, about Winfield Scott, and Scott was the head of the U.S. Army uh, then, who was advising Lincoln uh, not to try to resupply Sumter. Well, in my Seward book, I had failed to cite Eisenhower, and when we are leaving tennis court one day, he uh, very discreetly reminded me of that. Uh, So so in uh, in my Unionist of Virginia book, I was bound and determined to uh, cite him, and I did uh, several times, and uh, I had a copy of the book and was going to go over and take it to him and, you know, and uh, kind of uh, sound important, and John died about two months uh, before the book was published. <laughs> uh, listen to Eisenhower. It was not that Fort Sumter itself was so valuable, strategically Fort Pickens was far more significant but the city of Charleston had become equated in the public mind, at least in the northern mind, with rebellion and the very act of firing on the American flag aroused the nation much as it would be aroused 80 years later by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, what happens uh, after telegram news uh, reaches Richmond and Washington on the 13th. That firing is, uh taken place at Fort Sumter. That uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, the uh, the troops there in the fort had surrendered. Uh, the Unionists wondered, well, how how is Washington going to react to this news? Uh, w- we've been assured uh, that they will not. Uh, start a general uh, war. Um, on the 14th, it's a Sunday, the Virginia State Convention uh, is in recess. Uh, on Monday morning, uh, April 15th, we all think of that as a in a different way today, <laughs> but uh, Civil War era Americans, April 15th, to them, was this crushing day when Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation of insurrection uh, calling for uh, 75,000 troops to put down the rebellion. Oh, my God, says Sandy Stewart. He's reading this at breakfast on Monday morning. He said, this can't be. He said, I I just met with the president 48 hours ago. He gave me no indication, none at all, that he would declare war uh, on the southern states. We have been assured, we have been assured, we have been assured that this would not happen. I mentioned Bill Bill Freeling earlier. Uh, Listen to Freeling. Lincoln made a profound mistake by putting it this way, by wording the proclamation that a rebellion is uh, uh, taking place and that we are going to uh, put down uh, the rebellion by force of arms. Uh, what happened? The 75,000 troops were divided uh, by state. Each state had to produce uh, so many. I think for Virginia, uh, two or 3,000. Uh, anyway, all the states of the North responded affirmatively. All all of these eight slaveholding states, every single one of them, refused to send a single troop. For Southerners, for our Virginians, who had put it all on the line uh, to uh, save the nation from war, and who had it within their grasp, they they, they controlled seventy percent. Of the delegates. In fact, as you all know, on April 4th, just a mere eight days before the firing on Fort Sumter, as I was mentioning earlier, Lewis Harvey did bring forward his ordinance of secession, and the Virginians defeated it 90 to 45. Uh, the published number is 88 to 45, but. Uh, I and uh, uh, another Virginian here, uh, we have gone through uh, the data, and I think we have pretty uh, solid evidence that there were 90 votes against the April 4th Ordinance of Secession. Actually, uh, there would have been 94. There were four uh, unionist delegates who voted against the uh, uh, ordinance on April 17th who were absent. So again, it was an overwhelming... Uh, An overwhelming uh, Unionist victory. Uh, I don't don't want to irritate you now, but um, uh, this is John Brown Baldwin. He's the hero that I've been talking about. This is Sandy Stewart. Uh, He, he, uh, excuse me, Uh, he's uh, uh, another one of the Unionist heroes This is John Letcher. He's the uh, wartime governor of Virginia. Uh, He's a staunch unionist. Uh, This is one of the bad guys. This is William, excuse me, this is Henry Wise. Uh, Henry Wise was the most outspoken uh, leader of the pro-Confederacy men at the Virginia State Convention. Uh, And if I have time, I want to tell you a story that Nelson Langford's uh, book Uh, cry havoc has convinced me is real Uh, and I want to end by just talking uh, a moment about Robert E. Lee. Lee, as all of you know, was totally conflicted uh, by uh, whether to uh, resign his uh, commission in the United States Army. Uh, Almost all Uh, Who have uh, studied this in real depth uh, feel this. If the Virginia Unionists had been supported by Lincoln and had they been sustained, Virginia would not have seceded. And had Virginia not seceded, Robert E. Lee would have assumed command of the Union Army in the spring or summer of 1861. Well, who are these uh, Unionists? Who are my heroes? Uh, I think uh, a new monument needs to be put on Monument Avenue. <laughs> 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 to honor the 94 Virginians uh, who stood up and said, my country comes first. Uh, who are they? Well. Here's a name you'll know. Uh, Those of you from uh, Winchester will know the name of Robert Young Conrad. Uh, Conrad, uh, well, well known, highly regarded uh, man in the state. He chaired the convention's uh, committee on federal relations. Uh, See if any of your relatives are on here. Here's a Richmonder uh, Marmaduke Johnson, uh, John F. Lewis, interesting guy here from Rockbridge County. Uh, He was the only um, member of the Virginia State Convention east of uh, uh, what is now West Virginia who refused to sign uh, the Ordinance of uh, Secession. well-known guy in the state. Uh, here's a fella. I have to tell you the story of Logan Osborne. Um, I'm at a cocktail party, and this is a year or two ago, uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland. <clears throat> and uh, you know how you're just talking about things. And this uh, friend of mine comes up to me and says, uh, I hear you're writing a book about the uh, Virginians. And I said, yeah, I'm looking at... <clears throat> uh, uh, the the, the people who were unionists. And he said, uh, you know, my great-grandfather was a member of the uh, Virginia State Convention. And I said, oh, my heavens, what's his name? Well, it was Logan Osborne. And uh, I published a letter that this fellow gave me from his family archives in the book, and it's just a remarkable letter of how a Virginia unionist dealt with uh, the vote uh, on secession. Okay. Uh, George Summers from Kanawha County. Uh, He was one of the leaders. Uh, Taylor, well, well well-known guy in the state. Uh, All of these people were uh, Robert Scott, uh, uh, leading Unionists. He would die in 1862, uh, chasing some renegade (coughs) Union uh, troops (coughs) out of his home county. Um, And here I had mentioned Uh, four people who were absent on the April 4th vote. Uh, These these four (coughs) uh, voted against the ordinance of secession on April 17th. Uh, John Brown Baldwin uh, deserves special uh, mention. Uh, He would become what uh, (coughs) Cross called a reluctant confederate. Uh, He uh, served the uh, Uh, State uh, with true distinction during the war. And after the war, uh, in the Reconstruction, he was the legislature who headed the Baldwin Legislature. And uh, along with uh, Sandy Stewart, they devised uh, uh, the program to get Virginia back in the Union. Uh, Let me uh, just end uh, with a couple of uh, comments, if I can find them. Anyway, I dedicated this book uh, to uh, one of the great Civil War historians uh, of the 20th century. And and he uh, he coined this uh, phrase about Lincoln. Uh, He was far more fit to become than to be president. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, I, I did not come here to offend you, and, and I, I hope I haven't offended you too much. Uh, but uh, prior to the uh, ordinance of secession, uh, there's no question uh, unionism uh, was uh, a dominant force uh, in this state. Uh, how about a question or two? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. How do you feel when all this, uh, the dominating uh, history now of Abraham Lincoln being what the second uh, greatest American and a great politician? How do you feel of, with all of this going on? Uh, that's a dominating view of Lincoln. You see it on TV and in the movies and in the history books. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, good question. Uh, I think the answer is uh, simply this. Uh, the uh, the dominant group of uh, folks uh, that are writing American history now uh, feel that way. I think there is a rising group of people, uh, Bill Freeling, uh, Daniel Cross, uh, and to a lesser degree, uh, a lesser historian like me, uh, feel differently. Uh, Cross is coming out with a new book, uh, Freeling's coming out with a new book. I think uh, uh, for those uh, who who wanna look at different points of view, uh, there are different points of view. Let let me just say this about about Lincoln. Uh, He he was a man with a great capacity uh, for growth. Uh, It is very sad, uh, I think, uh, that at the beginning of the Civil War, We had a man with uh, such limited background, and a man who knew no one, uh, north or south, uh, a man who was uh, really uh, totally inexperienced. His contemporaries called him untested and untried. Uh, A year or two later, uh, not the case. Uh, He grew into the presidency. He figured out how to uh, uh, work the Congress. I think uh, for Virginians, though, it's in, in 1864, as all of you know, uh, Lincoln and Seward uh, met on a, uh, a ship out here in the river with uh, Grant and Sherman, uh, and they decided to uh, take the war to the people. Uh, and that resulted in uh, Sheridan uh, running up the uh, Shenandoah Valley and uh, simply uh, 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 destroying the valley. I think it's uh, one of the most unfortunate decisions ever made, ever made, by a sitting American president. Uh, I dealt with it a little bit in the book, and here is the issue. One can certainly make the case that the large slave owners, the ones who wanted to reopen the slave trade, that their mansions and plantations should have been burnt. And as uh, was uh, often said then, let's burn the big plantations, divide them up, and, and give the, uh, uh, each slave uh, 40 acres and a mule. You remember that expression. Uh, you, you can make justification for that. But what happened is when Sheridan went up the valley, he burnt everything. He burnt the big houses, the little houses. He burnt the slave houses. He burnt everything. And, and, and like, if, if you were like me and had been half crazed to, uh, to look at all these letters and stuff from people, uh, what happened then? You know, there were no uh, Walmarts, there were no shopping malls. Uh, when the food was gone, it was gone. And people survive by eating roots and bugs. Uh, What happened to the young people then? Black young people, white young people, the very young and the very old uh, would become malnourished. And as any physician will tell you, when the human uh, body becomes malnourished, it becomes much more susceptible to disease. And so we do not know uh, what uh, Sheridan's march up the valley did. Uh, we do know uh, that lots and lots of young people and lots and lots of old people uh, died from disease. Now, you can't say Sheridan killed them. Right here in front of me. Yes, sir. I, my understanding that- any of those who didn't have slaves to think in their own way? Uh, The the question is, did the large slave owners control the newspapers? Uh, They certainly controlled some. There's a famous story uh, of the slave owners buying a pro-unionist paper in Richmond, and I forget whether it's the Richmond Whig, but one of the major papers. They bought it just so they could control the editorial staff. Uh, I I think uh, in 1860, uh, if you try to put yourself back in that era, when there's no radio, no television, uh, newspapers were delivered, but uh, outside of the cities uh, in a very sporadic way, Uh, sometimes it would take a week, sometimes two weeks, Uh, most information was conveyed mouth-to-mouth. And uh, I think communities became little centers of unionism or little centers of uh, secessionism. Because in those days, don't forget, when you went to the polls, uh, there wasn't the Australia ballot. There was no secrecy. You walked in and you told the the election judge, I'm going to vote for Lincoln. I'm going to vote for whatever. And they handed you a ballot. Well, anybody standing there would know how you would vote. And if there were a group of uh, big guys uh, uh, who didn't vote the way you did, uh, you might be in trouble. So uh, what happened then is groups of men would go to the polls together, like-minded people, and, and that's how you uh, voted, and that's how you conducted your business uh, in discussing uh, politics. Yes, sir? Did, I'm sorry, we're going to have to call
0: one more question. Okay. we over time, so
1: right here with the microphone, and then I'm sure you'll be able to answer questions Did the unionist... Uh, After the war broke out, did they form an opposition party, and if so, to what extent? Uh, No, they did not. Uh, In uh, Western Virginia, uh, you know, uh, in late April, early May, about a thousand men gathered in. I don't know if it was Charleston or Wheeling, I've forgotten, but they decided to uh, break away uh, from the Richmond government and form their own state government, which they did in uh, mid-war sometime in 1863. Um, uh, those 50 counties pet- petitioned uh, uh, Washington, and uh, West Virginia became a, a state. Um, but there was, uh, there was really no... Uh, uh, not much organized uh resistance in uh, in uh, the confederacy i mean whether you like it or, or, or don't like it uh in, living in the confederacy then uh it was very one sided and uh they uh, it, to dissent uh from what was going on uh, people were uh, uh discouraged from doing that. Um, probably the most notable exception of that uh, was the wealthy politician, uh, major slave owner, plantation owner, John Minard Botts. (laughs) And Botts uh, just said that Jefferson Davis was a jerk uh, throughout the war, and in 1863 or so, uh, uh, troops came to his house and arrested him, put him in jail for a little while. <laughs> uh, after the war, uh, he wrote a uh, blistering treatise uh, on uh, uh, the failure uh, of the uh, uh, Confederate government. So, uh, anyway, uh, thank you for listening to me. I enjoyed being. <laughs>